Welcome to another episode of Banking on Air. My name is Helene Panzerino, and I'm your host for today. At Vacuum Labs, a solution-based tech powerhouse, we believe that the future is in communities when it comes to digital transformation and financial services. If you're interested in hearing more about fintech, digital banking, or payments, please don't hesitate to subscribe. And as usual, I'm not alone on this podcast. Today, I'm joined by Nikolai Hack from Nucoro, and we're going to hear about what Nucoro is, obviously, but we're also going to have a conversation around what it's like to be a business in different parts of the world, in the space that we're all in as well. Nick, do you want to introduce yourself to the audience? Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Helene. Good to be with you. Good to speak to you. I'm Nikolai. I'm the head of strategy and partnerships for Nucoro. I've been with the firm for a very long time, for as long as we exist, even before we were Nucoro, when we were a different team working on a different project that then became, by now it is a client of Nucoro as we moved on to work on different things and to what we work on now. I came to London because we started in Madrid three and a half years ago, four years ago, actually have been here ever since I was in a more operational role for a while. So taking care of all the things that happen behind the curtains, basically, the legal aspects, contracting with the third parties, the hiring policies, you know, all the things you don't necessarily hear and see much of when you deal with a business. But now I'm for the last year or so in this role where I build, nurture, initiate new partnerships with wide range of players across different verticals that help us build client solutions. And then I guess the strategy part is the fun element of doing stuff like this to come on to your podcast, for example. We can talk about the strategy that you've taken as affirming in terms of your expansion and which areas you're seeing coming to the fore, because let's roll it back to the fact that Nucoro is broadly speaking in the fintech vertical world. We'll talk about wealth management, robo-advisory as our buckets and where you want to fit into that. And we'll talk more about that as we go through this podcast. You and I have had many conversations about this space, initially not achieving the targets for assets under management that were set out in around 2014 by a lot of the industry. By the time we got to 2018, it was still half of what it was meant to be. And we ask ourselves, why was that? And where in the industry moving to in terms of the incumbents, is there a possibility for incumbent financial institutions to get on board with this again. And when we talk about wealth and advisory and what it is that the individual wants, why we're in this space, where we haven't achieved what was in the forecast, and we look at the moment we're in now, how have we moved on to a time where this vertical is part of fintech and will it have its day? We could also look at the impact of the pandemic and the impact of the world becoming much more aware of it globally and how we're not just looking at the US and the UK anymore. So let's roll it back to describe really where your place in the universe of fintech vertical is. Maybe I to explain that, I'll go back half a step or a step maybe just to explain where we come from. It has to do with what I said in my introduction where I said we were a different team. So when we started working in 2016, early 2016 together, where we come from is a joint venture between Ariane, the Rothschild, the head of the Rothschild family of Switzerland, and ETS Asset Management is a quantitative asset manager in Spain, the, one of the biggest ones in Europe, actually. And their idea was, we have incredible technology that in a highly automated fashion manages the money of high net worth individuals. Why don't we use this tech and bring private banking grade asset management to a mass market. To do that, at the core, what you need is technology to automate as many processes as possible. So you're still able to do individually managed portfolios for every single client at scale. Because if you don't have technology that automates and brings down the unit cost, 
you cannot do it at scale. You can only do it, again, for the high net worth individuals. So we started working on this project and what then became Exo Investing. Exo Investing is a live robo-advisor platform now in the UK. We built the tech, we launched it, got regulated, went through that, that entire process and yeah, brought it to the market in the UK for the two parties, ETS and the Rothschild family. This was as much a test balloon, but also a stepping stone into what we became afterwards, which was actually we realized, okay, there's a much bigger opportunity to not directly try to build one proposition for the market, but instead use the tech foundation that we had built and allow others to build all kinds of propositions on that basis. So if you want, you can build one e-commerce online shop or you build Shopify, right? And you enable thousands and millions of other people to build their e-commerce shops. And that's exactly what Nukoro is. The Nukoro platform is all about. We are a fantastic foundation to build saving, trading, investing, also wealth to a smaller degree, but saving, investing and trading propositions. So for retail clients, that's where our main focus is. Now we come to what you said, who's interested in this and whom do we try to sell this to? Where's the opportunity? For quite a while, we actually looked at the wealth manager market and we thought there was space and there was appetite in the wealth management also in the uk you know very specifically ifa market and there wealth management is an extremely slow moving sector it's um it's dominated by quite legacy or even legacy heavier structures than you would find in banking or insurance from a tech perspective the biggest opportunity in that space to build propositions with, with the technology that we have is for existing banks and for existing insurance firms who have millions of clients. They have the high street banks here, double digit millions of clients in the UK, of course. And most of their clients, they have deposits, they have a cart, maybe they do some lending, maybe they do a bit of FX when they travel. But for the big, big chunk of retail clients, they don't do anything with their money. It just sits there. It sits on the balance sheet of the bank, costing the bank money. If you think of negative interest rates, which are even in the UK sometimes discussed now. And in the means of inflation, it costs the individual money. Actually, you lose purchasing power. You're not doing anything with it. So it's a lose-lose situation. For a bank to build an exciting proposition that can rival what some of the challenges have built and are building, the Robin Hoods of this world, the eToros, the you know Acorns, the money boxes, also the Revoluts. If you can build something like this and stop the loss of market share towards these challengers, towards these aggressive entrants into your home turf by building something that is as exciting as well working and also creates a benefit and value for the client, then you turn the lose-lose into a win-win. And that's what we try to be a part of. Fairly interesting. And actually listening to you, I'm reminded of a few years back when there was a bit of a shakeup in the sector in the UK. I can't speak for the rest of the world where there was some mis-selling and there was a real fear, I think, from the bank's perspective that they could get wrapped up again and get their knuckles wrapped again and they could be fined. A lot of them pulled back. A lot of independent financial advisors pulled out of the space because of mis-selling. And if you lived in the UK or you were in this space, you heard of PPI, which was the Payment Protection Insurance Scam. It was all around at the time, and it really made the market shrink. But it also put a spin on what was a normal thing. If you got a mortgage or an investment tool from your bank, you would normally get the wealth or the other tool with it. That was really, it changed, right? So that was pretty standard fare. It probably wasn't the most high-performing investment portfolio, but you could change it from a bank because it wasn't something that anyone thought about. It just came with the package. It came with the mortgage. When it stopped, it was almost like saying there was a little bit of a gap in the market until we started to see, as you say, people coming into the market, targeting the space, people that were not yet sitting on a decent amount of money, but were all aware that we were encouraging everyone to save and invest. 
because we all know at some point, wherever you are in the world, our pension pots are not going to be enough for us. And that market wasn't wealthy enough to create break-evens or profits for the companies that were entering it. Some of the ones you mentioned that are profitable, yes, some of them are not profitable. Some of them have raised hundreds of millions of one currency or another and are still finding their way around. And I think we've discussed that something like over 80% of bank customers would like their banks, their retail banks, to come back with a proposition, but they're not doing it. I wonder if part of that is because they were burned and they were frightened from going down that road again. They don't have the internal expertise. They don't have the internal technology, which is where you can plug in, for example. And then what's the role of the intermediary themselves? Is there a B2B proposition, almost like a junior B2B proposition that isn't going into an organization with 30 million customers? but go into the brokers or the financial advisors in the middle to give them a level of intelligence to then share with the end user. You mentioned a lot of good points. The interesting one is what you said about the well, mis-selling and what that triggered. And it's a part of a bigger package, right? And especially over the last year, there was a lot of talk of K-shaped recovery. It was right that the stock market goes up, but the real economy actually goes down. In wealth management, there has been a K-shaped development for quite a while that actually AUM goes up and the assets under management go up, but profitability is constant and has been declining for two decades now. Since 2000, it's a staggering picture if you see it on a chart, actually. AUM up 30%, profitability on 30%. So in a market where there's more money to manage, you actually make less money with it. And that just says a lot about this industry, how inefficient it is, how low productivity must be, how bad performing, a lot of the marketing and sales efforts must be. A lot of things are, to a degree, broken a bit. I think there is some organic limit to how much reform you can trigger and how much you reform or renewal you can kick off. It just really sometimes ends with the firm not surviving a disruptive change. It's the new players that come in and they actually take the entire cake and not only a piece of the cake. And I think, to a degree, for wealth management is true, but you've mentioned also there are still some players who came into the space of investing, so saving, uh, and I've mentioned some names already that are actually quite successful. But then still, the major entry point for people when it comes to money is a bank. It's the one point of also financial connection outside our groups of friends and outside our family that we automatically turn to because obviously everybody has a bank account. You need a bank account for your salary, you need a bank account to pay your bills, etc. So it's a, while not mandatory, you will have a bank account at some point in your life. This entry point is extremely strong. This is also why the biggest opportunity to capture people's attention when it comes to any of those things, saving, investing, pensions, protection. If you think of a life, what is a life insurance? A life insurance is a forward-looking arrangement for your money, right? While the product has a different name, it's not very different to a retirement portfolio. All of these entry points where banks have the strongest connections to the individual, for them, the opportunity to do something and build something new, take inspiration from what has been built. You don't have to reinvent the wheel, but to make use of the leverage they have also not only in terms of actually existing client base, but also in terms of brand. And there's something interesting. While a lot of people will say they don't like bankers or they don't trust bankers, they will still trust the high street bank more than a challenger bank with their salary. That's just a fact. And it's reflected in a lot of the balances at the challenger banks where it's a couple hundred pounds or 250, 300 pounds, maybe the average account balance. These strong relationships to use them, that's the opportunity for the existing players. And I think they're enabled with the right technology because that's the enabler. If you don't have the right tech, if you build it again based on your current business model, your current processes, your current operational model as well, it's not going to work. 
it's going to fail from a UX perspective, but more importantly, it's going to fail commercially from a business perspective. So there's a question around the technology that banks have and that they need to open up the concept of having technological plugins. And obviously, you know, we're building products and services. You have technology that you can add on. We can do work around the integration and they can get on with it. And I'm sure there are times where there's a debate between the department of a bank and the people that actually want to move things forward, whether or not they run in parallel or whether there is resistance to this. But it seems mad given the size of the market and the demand of the population not to do them externally. Now we're talking about this case, the UK, and I'm sure you have a sense of your connecting the dots between Spain and here and other parts of the world. And now, of course, you're looking at MENA, or specifically Bahrain. Is it the same everywhere, or are the attitudes different in other parts of the world? Actually, to your first point, because you mentioned the IT departments, because it's uh, such a, a constant phenomenon, of course, of the conversations we have. That's actually interesting, because for just coming quickly back to wealth management, where tech players did themselves a big disservice was by choosing the term robo-advice, because robo sounds like no people, and wealth management is a people business. So obviously, the hostility there was only fueled by just the terminology, which I totally understand. If your business relies on the people-to-people interaction, a robot sounds like that's not going to happen. Why would I want that in my business? For internal IT departments of especially banks, platform, quite necessarily at the core of what a platform is, it's not custom software development. So it is, to a degree, a bit of a dethroning of the existing emperors, maybe. Of course, in the end, it's exactly right what you said. It's about integrating the right pieces and that is actually the more important work to choose the right players and then by connecting them build a solution where the total sum is bigger than the sum of the individual parts that's the what i would say is the job where the right amount of effort and work should be spent by it departments not trying to build themselves because it's a bit of a futile effort but to your other point what's interesting is of course the stage of development of a market here in the uk in western europe we have quite established of course banking and financial services markets very established, obviously. Here, the UK, a trading nation, some of the banks here are hundreds of years old, actually. Not necessarily with the same name, but as institutions at their core, they can, they can be hundreds of years old. That not only leads, obviously, to some cultural impact of how you work as an organization, how open you are to change, for good reasons. Sometimes it doesn't make sense to jump on always the newest fad. But especially in technological terms, it means you have a lot of buildup of layers and layers of systems and technology legacy that hold you back. Absolutely clearly, there's no denying it. And everybody knows it. This is no secret within any of the financial services industries. Go to the Middle East, for example. Go to the CEE region. Go to Africa, the NA part, or even Sub-Saharan Africa, obviously. None of that is there. Especially when it comes to the technology infrastructure, you don't have decade-old systems. You have maybe eight decade-old systems or maybe one and a half, two decades-old systems. But it makes a big difference for how you approach technological change. Then, of course, a big factor as well is demographics and how that impacts what appetite there is for what kind of propositions. Again, think of the Middle East or, again, Africa. Young populations, the average age of Saudi Arabia is in the high 20s or something. It's crazy. The average age of Germany is 42 years. I know it because it's where I'm from. So huge difference in what these people think, what kind of propositions you want to build. I spoke to a German insurance executive. I come to him and I talked about, hey, what you can build with our tech is a Robin Hood challenger to challenge what Robin Hood builds. And he says, that's very interesting. But what I have, my biggest problem is I have people who are 65 to 70 years old, their life insurance matures, the policy is up for maturity. 
they haven't heard from me in 25 years. Some of them might not even know that they have this insurance policy. What do I do with them? It's like a completely different mindset, obviously, driven by the demographic situation of the market. So that influences a lot what is built and what appetite there is, but also from a technology perspective, what you can build and how easy or difficult it can be. Interesting, isn't it? And actually, as you were talking, I was thinking there's a need for a dashboard for the back book of all these big banks and insurance companies. So you know exactly what you have and you can say about the touch that you have with people as well. It makes perfect sense. And that is a foray or stepping into this part of the world, part of more global expansion plans for Nucora. For us right now, clearly Europe is where we are. Then the Middle East is just because we have some connections that we can use into the region and some partners there with whom we can work. So that's why it's a bit more interesting than anything that's probably a bit further away. Of course, long term, the US is extremely interesting. To go to the U.S. is expensive. To go to the U.S. takes a lot of thought, takes a lot of planning. It's not something that we want to entertain at this point. I can say that quite openly. What might enable it is maybe in the context of a strategic investor, maybe somebody comes in and then opens up that market with us and we open up the market together. Maybe that is probably more likely than us doing it alone. I don't think we will do it alone. For the foreseeable future, Europe is where we are. We have four offices now. We have here London, where I am. We have in Madrid our engineering and product team, our CTO, our CEO, Leonard. He's also in, in Madrid. Then we have two offices in Switzerland, actually, one in Zurich, one in Geneva. Because of the connection to the Rothschild family, we have a good network in Switzerland that we want to tap into, which is why we're there with two different locations even. That's the setup for the moment, and I think we won't stray too far for the foreseeable future, I think. When you say Switzerland, it reminds me as well what your feeling is all around the hype around Bitcoin and other coins and cryptocurrencies and whether or not we should be investing in them or is it not for the faint of heart and we should stay away? Is that something that we should not put in our portfolios, in your opinion? It's interesting, you know, like the question, right, that we, or not the fact that we talk about it now, it's a, it's a testament to how big of a wave there is at the moment. I do believe that given the current monetary policy regime globally around the world, where there's a lot of ease around the creation of money and there's a lot of newly printed fiat currency here in Europe with the ECB, same goes, of course, for the Fed and the US. All of that oversupply of fiat currency makes things that are harder to reproduce and to expand the supply of more interesting. And that's real estate, that's gold, commodities as well, which still increase, but both of them can be increased, but not as easily. And then Bitcoin as well is also rare. And for Bitcoin, especially compared to the two, we have a totally fixed supply. So I think that's, that's what makes it very interesting. And I don't think there will be a turnaround in the monetary policy. I think cryptocurrencies are here to stay, not all of them, but Bitcoin definitely. And I think it will be a very interesting asset over the coming years. I am quite bullish on it. But then, like I said, if you have high degrees of inflation, which I expect, then you should be bullish about everything that can actually be printed, in a, that can be produced in a printing machine. And there was some question in the market. It's like the $64,000 question, isn't it? Why is all of the money and more money being printed, but it's not in circulation? Okay, I'm voting for the fact that it's under people's mattresses, because when people are frightened, they revert to what they think is safer, which is why gold is obviously also having a moment. It's being hidden somewhere in case they need to get to it. Yeah, and quite clearly, you know, the restrictions around COVID plays a huge role in the development of asset markets. You don't go out, you don't go to the pub, you don't go to the bar, you don't go to the cinema. But if you have kept your job, all of a sudden, probably your disposable income is up by a lot of people, by 100% potentially, because a lot of things just have fallen away. And if not, it's by maybe 50%, 30%, whatever, 20%, you have more money per month. What do you 
you do with that money? You just save it, you put it away in the deposit, you leave it on the bank, or you throw it into your Robinhood account and start trading, what was it, GameStop shares. I don't know if you heard that story, but now GameStop, the very likely defunct like retail outlet for computer games, the stock shot up but from 10 to 100, I think, over the last week or so, because... Someone had the idea to force a short squeeze on some hedge funds in a Reddit forum. I mean, it's an insane story, but that kind of stuff is possible at the moment. So there's a lot of money going around that doesn't find a lot of very productive uses, but instead finds its way into the exchanges, finds its way in the UK, always into property where prices, everybody thought it would collapse. If they haven't, they've still gone up. So yeah, that's what a lot of money does. Things get a bit more expensive. And I think there's been a surge in e-commerce spending as well, spinning up something like 400%, which was making a heyday for the payments industry. And who knows where we'll be when we come out of this as well. I just wanted to touch also a little bit on the founder story because you mentioned Lennart and the two of you go way back, don't you? In terms of your meeting and then your journeys as entrepreneurs. It's always interesting to see where people came from. Yes, we do go back. We met in high school actually and... Yeah, just stayed in touch, went different ways. He went straight into the world of financial services, worked in venture capital for a while, then went into quantitative asset management. And I went into the policy realm for a while. I worked in some yeah, international institutions, I spent some time at the EU, actually in Brussels, and then went into consulting. And then, so especially the conversation started when he talked about what they do at his current employer at ETS, what kind of technology they work with and what it is used for and what the audience is. At that time, this was the initial wave of robo-advice, right? The first time the wealthy fies and scalable capital and here in the UK, the nutmegs, you know, because they were around for two, three, four years maybe. And we looked at that and said, look, that works quite well, but then you can do a lot more. Actually, if you looked under the hood of what was called robo, there wasn't that much robo there. It was still quite, there were a lot of people in, and you looked at the job offers and you saw they hired people in operations and like portfolio managers and they have a chief investment officer. And I'm not saying that all of these things are wrong. I think that they're there for very good reasons sometimes, but we thought if it's robo, why is it not really robo? And that's what we wanted to do. Then we got together with, obviously we needed funding and we found them in the, the partners I mentioned in the, the Rothschild family, members of the Rothschild family. And that's the funny bit, right? You think they have, as a family, as a dynasty, they've been around for actually hundreds of years. Why would they be interested in something that disrupts, you know, industry? but you only stay relevant for hundreds of years if you make good decisions. And if you place some well-placed bets from time to time, obviously that's how it works. We found them and very trusted, very lucky to have them as partners. The other parties is ETS, who brought the initial tech of the actual portfolio management, because that's what they were doing before, stock of high net worth individuals or institutional clients, actually. Some people say, I always wanted to be an entrepreneur, and I had this idea for so long. And then, But that's not really our story. We saw what was happening, how others were doing things, and that gave us an idea to maybe look at different ways of doing it. And this was the origin, I think, for... What was that back then EXO? And now it's, of course, we spun EXO out, EXO investing, we spun it out. And now Nucoro is the actual thing. So I wanted to ask, if you go back in this conversation we had about the bank, say, as we wrap up, if you could say to a large financial institution, hey, you have unmet demand and we have a solution and we can get that integrated really easily, yeah. what would be the one to three things that you would want to say to them to get them into the conversation? I could go with, you know, to our pitch deck and the USPs, but I really think it's actually not it's actually not that complicated. I mean, at least for me, you know, it's not that complicated. But 
you look at your balance sheet and talk to your CFO, and a lot of CFOs, especially European banks, are worried about this. We have a balance sheet that's too large. We have too much money sitting there doing nothing. On the other hand, talk to your retail guys. They say, we have clients who have kids, but one, we don't know their kids. And if we look at our onboarding numbers of 18 to 25-year-olds in a market like the UK, it's not looking too good. They go somewhere else. A lot of them go to the challengers. And then go to your tech guys and talk to them and ask them about any kind of product that you've built. Did it come in under budget? And did it come in within the, the specified timeline of the things that you were building yourself over the last couple of years, whatever that was. And if you've talked to these three different people, then if we're lucky, we catch you right at that moment. And then we can talk to you about, hey, there's a huge opportunity. You can build stuff that can rival the challengers if you have the right technology and you can do it on time and on budget and it will cost you a fraction of what it will cost you if you do it yourself and will take a fraction of the amount of time as it would if you would try it yourself. It's quite a logical deduction, a logically deducted way of selling what we have. But all of these things are true. And I think over time, the platform approach has or is starting to become the method of choice for a lot of technology projects because it just it makes more sense to not try to do something that somebody else is clearly better positioned than you to do. So there's less and less convincing also that we need to do. But the biggest blocker for us, the biggest competition for us, it's not some other player. It's the internal mindset of thinking that you could do this yourself. That's the lever we need to pull and we need to push and need to work on. I would 100% agree with you. And I think just stay with us as we move forward into other parts of Vacuum Labs. We're going to be talking about partnerships what's successful, what happened, how do you go from a strategy, for example, to an implementation, and who can you work with along the way? I imagine for some people, they something gets landed on the table or on the desk, and they say, we need this to happen, or look into this, and they just don't know who to turn to. It's great when we have partnerships that work together in the same way that our two organizations work together. But I think with just the cloud was always the thing that was in the background as well, putting people off, working externally and looking at platforms. And now over the last three years, we see much more acceptance of that. And maybe that'll be the thing that unlocks the door and opens it up for everyone to get on board. Because you're right, it's cheaper, it's faster, and it's going to be a better product fit because you're going to get the best in class of everything that you need plugging in for the purpose. So it's logical that should happen in that way. I would say thank you very much to Nikolai Hack from Nucoro for joining us today. I always learn a lot when I speak with you, and I imagine all of our listeners will as well. And please, everybody, subscribe and tell your friends, families, and colleagues all about Banking On Air. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you very much. <laughs>